You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 6, and we read together verses 44 through 47 of John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing before we begin. Our Father, everything that we have ever received, we have received from your hand. And you who have taught us and brought us to your Son, we pray that you would now teach us from your word and sanctify us by your truth. Open our eyes that we may behold in your word wonderful things. Teach us about yourself, salvation, and your glory. We pray, O God, that your Spirit would be our teacher today and that uh, our eyes and hearts may be open to obedience. Give us as your people grace to obey you and your word, that we might be sanctified by its truth. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. The last couple of weeks, actually I think it's been through a good portion of John 6, I have shared from different, a couple of different occasions uh, little snippets of how I came to Christ and what type of an experience that was for me. I Standing up here, I purposefully refrain from sharing much about my own conversion experience and story because there is in it an inherent danger, I think, when when people who are in leadership positions or teaching positions uh, share a conversion experience that is traumatic. And one of the dangers is that other people who are there listening might begin to say to themselves, well, I didn't, I didn't have an experience like that. Am I, am I not saved? The danger is that, and all of us fall into it, of beginning to compare our conversion experience or our experience with Christ where we came to faith in Christ, begin to compare that with other people. Have you ever found yourself doing that? And you say to yourself, man, mine, mine wasn't like that. I mean, I, I wish I had been a, a, a drunk crack addict and have God save me like that. And I was just a four-year-old who prayed with my parents on the bedside one night. Or I was just a six-year-old whose Sunday school teacher led me to Christ. I don't have anything like that. And we can fall into the danger of thinking that if our experience is not like somebody else's, that maybe we're not as spiritual and begin to judge our spirituality or the legitimacy of our conversion against somebody else's dramatic experience. For me, my conversion was a dramatic thing, and I've shared parts of that. Um, it was for me as if somebody had turned on a light in a dark room. I understood things at, at an instant that I had not understood the instant before. I saw things and, and had affections and desires one moment that I did not have the moment before. For me, I knew that when I got saved, everything changed. I had no idea how much everything would change, but everything changed. My affections changed. I suddenly loved something that I had never loved before and had no desire to love before. And I suddenly hated all of my sin. I looked at my sin and I saw it. I didn't want anything to do with it anymore. And I remember less than an hour after God saved me, I remember sitting there thinking to myself, this means that everything has changed. From this point forward, my life is going to be different. I know that. I have to now find out how to live with this Lord that I have just bowed the knee to. 
And so it meant for me a radical change. And I never want anybody to think, well, if I didn't have an experience like that, if God didn't take me and push my face into the dust and give me a Damascus Road type experience, maybe I'm not saved after all. Maybe there's something something wrong with me. You might say, Jim, I don't remember the day I got saved. It was like a season or a period of time. I don't remember exactly where I was at or exactly what I was doing, but I remember a season of my life when suddenly I began to respond to truth differently. I saw things in a different light, and I just know that over the course of a period of time, and I'm sure exactly when it happened, my affections changed. Or you might say, well, Jim, it wasn't for me a dramatic experience like it was for you. I was just, uh, you know, I, I prayed with my mother before I went to bed, and I went to sleep that night. I wasn't like you. I didn't cry like a schoolgirl for hours after trusting Christ because it wasn't an earth-shattering experience for me. It wasn't a hyper-emotional experience for me. It wasn't a, a radical transformation. It was more of a gradual transformation. Let me encourage you with something. Jesus handles all of his sheep differently. He handles all of his sheep differently. He knows exactly what each one of his sheep needs to be brought from A to B. And he knows exactly how to handle each one of his own so that he might bring them to himself. And it's it's different with every sheep because he knows how to handle each one of us. For some of us, he he crushes us in our sin, just destroys us. And he allows some of us to go through a rocky and rough terrain and to sow and then to reap the benefits of that sowing and to experience all of the affliction and the pain and the anguish that goes with a life of rebellion and sin and iniquity and everything and, and for a long period of times. Others of us, he doesn't allow to go through that. Some of us, when he teaches us, he, he teaches us very gently. It's a very gentle road. Some of his sheep he allows to kick against the goads for year after year after year and to hear his voice calling and calling and calling. And other of his sheep tend to come at the first beckoning. He doesn't have to call them for a long period of time. He just calls them once and they come. And it's a very gentle drawing. For others, it's a driving. For others, he, he, he whips us into the kingdom. Some of us, he doesn't need to whip into the kingdom. He handles each of his sheep differently. And every, every conversion experience is different, just like every one of you is different. No two of you are the same. And no two of your conversion experiences is the same. And very seldom are any two conversion experiences even similar to each other. Because he handles each of his sheep differently. So don't ever get into the, fall into the trap of thinking, wow, I wasn't drawn to God like that. Well, he drew you exactly how he needed to draw you in order to bring you from your sin to the Savior. And Jesus handles each of his sheep differently. That's a good truth, is it not? There's no, there's no cookie cutter template. Paul's conversion was not like Peter's. Peter's was not like Paul's. Paul's conversion was not like Cornelius or Lydia or the Philippian jailer or anybody else. It wasn't like yours or mine. My conversion was not like Spurgeon's. Spurgeon's conversion is not like yours. Everybody is different. So we ought to be encouraged by that. Jesus handles each of his sheep differently. But no matter what your conversion experience looks like, there are certain things that are common to all of us. And that's what we've been looking at in John 6. Whether you kicked against the goads for a long period of time or whether you bowed the knee rather quickly and yielded at the first beckoning of the Savior, whether it was through a rough road that he brought you to himself or whether through a smooth road that he brought you to himself, whether it was a traumatic experience or a not-so-traumatic experience, whether it was sort of an instant in time that you can pinpoint or a season of time when you're not quite sure, there is one thing that all of us have, as several things, all of us have in common. All of us were given by the Father to his Son. And the Son pledged to receive all of us. And the, and the Son pledged to secure and to save all of those whom the Father has given to Him. And all of us can say, and all of us can affirm, that if we have come to Christ, 
It is because the Father has drawn us to His Son. None of His sheep can say that they came under their own strength or they came under their own power or they came as an act of their own decision or their own will unaided by the Spirit of God. All of us have been drawn to the Son by the Father. That's John 6, 44 and 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. That is what all of us have in common. All of us were unable... All of us were drawn by the Father to the Son. All of us were received by the Son. And all of us will be raised up. Not one will be missing. All of us will be raised up on the last day. That is the work of the triune God in our salvation. And those are the common things that we, those are the things that we have in common. And everyone, everyone who has been taught by the Father comes to the Son. That's verse 45. We looked at that last week. The promise of the prophets was that for all of God's people included under the new covenant, the Father would be their teacher. And the Father would be the one who would bring them to the Son. And the Son would receive them and raise them up. So everyone who has been taught of God has come to the Son. And nobody who has not been taught of God ends up coming to the Son. And nobody who has been taught of, uh, taught of God fails to come to the Son. Everyone who is taught by the Father about the Son in a salvific way ends up coming to the Son All of them without fail. That's verse 45. So now we pick it up with verse 46 today. Verse 46 is a bit of a clarification of what Jesus means by being taught of God in verse 45. And so today we're going to kind of wrap up this whole idea of being drawn to the Father, what that means, what that looks like, and how it is done. If everyone who comes to the Son has been taught by the Father, then everyone who comes to the Son has been drawn by the Father and drawn not by the emotion, but by the intellect. I want you to notice from verse 45, and this is something that I actually intended to point this out last week because it really fits with last week's sermon, but I have to fit it in somewhere, so it's going to go in this week's sermon because I forgot it. God in the gospel does not bypass our intellect. Do you notice that? God does not go around the intellect to affect our heart. You know how God gets to our heart? It's not by changing our emotions. It's by changing our minds. See, Christianity is a religion that makes certain truth claims. It's a faith that makes claims about the way the world really is. It claims to tell us the truth about God, the truth about man, the truth about eternity, the truth about everything under the sun. That's what Christianity claims. So Christianity and the gospel are not an emotional appeal. They are an intellectual appeal. God changes the will by changing the mind, not by addressing the emotions. The gospel is not an emotional event. And the gospel is not an emotional appeal. And the gospel is not, the faith, I should say, is not an emotion at all. Faith is an act of the intellect. And the gospel addresses the intellect. And God changes the heart by changing the mind. And by assaulting us with truth. And by driving at us with truth so that we come to an understanding of truth. The gospel doesn't go around the intellect to go to the heart. The gospel goes to the heart through the intellect. When you and I come to an understanding of truth and our eyes are opened, And thus our hearts are open, and our minds are changed, and because our minds are changed, our will is therefore changed, because our affections and our desires are changed when our mind is changed. I'm weary always of any gospel presentation that couches the gospel in an appeal to the emotions. And you know what I mean. Playing the soft music behind the gospel presentation as you're asking people to come forward and the music and everything about it is intended to sort of gin up the emotions, right? To gin up the heart and to get us to make an emotional decision. The gospel is not an appeal to the emotions. You know what happens when somebody makes an emotional response to the gospel when it's couched in an emotional setting? You know what happens? 
They go to work the following day, and their job is the same, their boss is the same, their co-workers are the same, and guess what happens eventually to their emotions? It goes right back to the way it was last week. Because the emotions wear off. And then they're left wondering, well, how? I, I thought this was supposed to be the abundant life, and I was supposed to be living on this for the rest of my life, this emotional high. And that's not what it is at all. I'm weary of gospel presentations that couch the gospel in terms of an appeal to the emotions. Is that to say that emotions have no place in our salvation? Would I say that? That the emotions have no place in our salvation? No, I told you, I cried like a schoolgirl after I got saved. Like a week, I was hyper-emotional. I couldn't believe I had been saved. Couldn't believe I had been set free. Couldn't believe everything had changed. I passed from darkness to light. I was no longer under condemnation. I cried like a girl. Could hardly be around my friends for a week. It was that emotional. But listen, who's laughing at that? You bunch of hard-hearted, stone-hearted people. Though it was an emotional event for me, it was not, the gospel was not presented to elicit an emotional response. See, my emotions, emotions are like a caboose. They follow everything else. They're there, but they don't drive the train. Truth drives the train. Truth affects our emotions. So when we understand truth, truth pulls our emotions along with it so that our emotions are a valid response to truth, not to an emotional appeal. It's truth that drives the engine of salvation, and our emotions get pulled right in behind it. So God does affect our emotions, but he doesn't address our emotions. Once we come to Christ, there is an emotional element to it, but that's not the appeal that the gospel makes. Do you understand the difference between that? We have been taught of God. God has addressed us intellectually and opened our eyes to understand truth. So that in understanding truth, we make a proper response to truth by His grace. And that proper response to truth is part of the regenerating, transforming work of God by which our hearts are changed and our affections follow that. Just like a caboose follows a train. But they don't have cabooses anymore, do they? No, they don't. So maybe my analogy is a little bit old. God does not bypass the intellect And friends, one thing you and I should remember is that there is a type of knowledge that does not convert. There is an unconverting knowledge. We've seen this in John 6, have we not? The crowds had an understanding of Jesus. Nicodemus had an understanding of Jesus. There is a knowledge. There is an understanding. There is being taught something that does not end up affecting the heart. Even the crowd here understood Jesus in certain terms. They understood him to, they understood him to be the king. They thought he had certain messianic qualities. They wanted to make him king. They had an understanding of who he was to some degree and an understanding of what he was able to do, but that knowledge did not bring them in penitent faith to that divine son. That knowledge did not affect them. They walked away, even with all of that light, unbelieving. There is an exposure to knowledge and truth which leaves us unconverted because truth by itself cannot convert you. It is truth united with faith, united with the work of the Spirit of God, the teaching of God and the dwelling of God and God instructing that instructs the mind and brings the heart to Him. So you can have all the knowledge in the world it's possible for someone to say, I know the Bible well. I quoted it in Sunday school class. I memorized it in Awana. I memorized it in VBS. I've heard the gospel. I understand the gospel. I was raised in a Christian home. My parents shared the gospel with me all the time. We read the Bible together. We had family devotion. Went to church every week and worship. And it's possible for someone to know the Bible. It's possible for somebody to know the Bible better than anybody seated in this room. Anybody standing on this podium. And still perish. Why? Is it truth alone which saves? No, it is that truth united by faith and the work of God. He must be taught of God, because everyone taught of God comes to the Son. And those who are not taught of God do not come to the Son. 
It's possible there are many people in hell who know the Bible better than anybody in this room. But that knowledge only drove them into darkness and away from the truth. That knowledge only served to harden their heart because they were not taught of God. They would not, that knowledge did not yield them to penitent, humble faith in the divine Son. It was an unconverting knowledge. Now back to John chapter 6, verse 46 and following, or 45 and 46 actually. Jesus quoting the prophets. Remember from last week, they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Now I want you to, we've kind of explained a little bit about what this means to be taught of God. I want you to hear from the ears of those who would have been listening to Jesus. Imagine what that would have sounded like to have Jesus say that to them. Who is his audience? Where is he at? Verse 59 says he was in the synagogue at Capernaum, and he's addressing the Jews, which is John's term for the religious leaders of the nation. He's speaking to religious leaders. He's speaking to Jews. And he is saying to them, if you do not come to me, it is evidence that God has not been your teacher. Now, these are Jews. They fancied themselves as the people of God. They fancied themselves as those who had been taught by God. Did they not have the Scriptures? Yeah, they did. Did they not have the prophets? Sure they did. Did they not have the rabbis and the traditions and the teachings and the books? They did that. They they heard the law of God and the Word of God read every week in their synagogue. And yet Jesus is saying, you have not been taught of God because you will not come to Me. And because you will not come to Me, that is evidence that God is not your teacher. These were the people of God, and they would have fancied themselves as the very ones on all, and all of the face of the planet who had been taught by God. But here's Jesus' point. Because you do not come to me, it is evidence that you are not God's people. In other words, your rejection of me is proof that you have rejected the Father. And you may be God's people nationally as a nation, but you are not God's people by regeneration or by faith. You are not included in the covenant. You are not saved. Because if you were, if you were taught by God, And if the word of God had had its way in you, you would come to me and trust me. Remember back in John chapter 5, he said the same thing to the religious leaders there. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it's these that testify about me and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. You've read the scriptures, you've heard the scriptures, you know the scriptures, and yet they don't lead you to me. And they should lead you to me. Then he says to you, then he says to them in verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, whom you've placed your hope. For you believe Moses, you would be, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. They knew the scriptures, they fancied themselves to be knowledgeable in the scriptures, and yet they did not come to the Son. This group of people was a group of people that had that unconverting knowledge. They knew intellectually who, the, who Jesus was claiming to be. They knew intellectually a lot about God, but they had not been taught by God. Their heart had not been drawn by the Father to the Son. Everyone who is thus drawn comes to the Father. They had an unconverting knowledge. Now verse 46 is a correction of a potential misunderstanding. Read verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Now it would be possible for people who are listening to Jesus to think that when Jesus was explaining being taught by the Father, that he was also meant with that, that the Father had appeared to, by personal revelation or some sort of a mystical experience, those who were the taught. So we might take this clarifying statement in verse 46 and state it this way. We could sort of rephrase it this way. To be taught by the Father means, it does not mean that anybody, that those who have been taught by the Father have seen the instructor. Does that make sense? Just because you've been taught by the Father doesn't mean you've seen the instructor. You can be taught by the Father and not even realize you're being taught by the Father. 
Those who are listening to Jesus should not in any way assume that just because he has said that all of the people who follow him have been taught by God, that all of the people who follow him have had seen the Father or had the Father revealed to them, because they hadn't, had they? That's why he says no one has seen God. The story of your being drawn to the Son, your coming to Christ, is a story of you following a path that you had no idea anybody had already laid out for you. In fact, most people who come to the Son, come to the Son and arrive at the position of truth and respond to that truth and understand that truth and are radically changed by that truth before they even realize that they have been all the while taught by the Father. Was that not the case with you? For most people, it is long after they have come to faith in Christ that they suddenly realize, hold on a second, the Father was doing this teaching all along. This path that I thought I was on, the steps that I thought were ordained by no one, the path that I thought was predestined by no one, all of these things that happened to me that I thought were my own doing was the work of the Father in His gracious providence bringing me to His Son all along. And I had no idea that was going on. An individual who is taught by the Father does not necessarily ever see the Father because no one has seen the Father except whom? The Son. He is the only one who has seen the Father. If that wording sounds familiar, it's because back in chapter 1, verse 18, John says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, that's the Son, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. So there's only one person who has first-hand knowledge of the Father and the Father's plan for salvation, and that is the Divine Son. And nobody else has seen the Father. If you've come to faith in Christ this morning, you were taught by the Father and you never saw your instructor. Not only that, but you never even knew He was instructing you, did you? You didn't know that. You took step after step after step, and pretty soon you found yourself right at the foot of the cross, right at the face of Christ, responding to truth, and you had no idea that it was the Father who was guiding providentially all of those steps all the way along. No one has seen God at any time except the Son. He is the unique one. In coming to salvation, did you behold the Father? Did you ever see the Father? You've never even seen with your physical eyes the Son. But in coming to salvation in Christ, you have never once beheld the Father. In fact, the person who is placed in front of you that you see and that you respond to is the Son. Verse 40, we behold the Son and believe on Him and receive eternal life and are raised up on the last day. It's the Son who is the object of our affection. It is the Son who is the object of the revelation. It is the Father moving us to the Son, the Spirit opening our eyes to the Son so that we behold in Christ all that is God. That is why Jesus could say to Philip, Philip, you don't need to see the Father. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. There's nothing else to reveal. In the Son is all of the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. And to see Him and to know Him and to understand Him and to receive Him and to trust Him and to behold Him is to behold everything about God. There's nothing else that needs to be revealed about our God that is not revealed in the person of Christ. And so to come to Him and to receive Him is to receive the fullness of God in all of its totality. No one has seen the Father except the Son. He has revealed the Father to us, and when we respond and embrace the Son, we respond and embrace the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Friends, our salvation is a Trinitarian salvation. We have seen this in John chapter 6, have we not? The Father gave a people to the Son. The Son received those people, pledged to secure those people, and to keep those people, and to raise all of them up at the last day, so that all that the Father has given to me will come to me. Why? Because the Father will be their teacher. Verse 44. The Father will draw them to Himself by teaching them, by addressing the intellect, and changing the mind, and thus changing the heart, and changing the affections, and making the unwilling willing. He will bring those whom He has given to the Son to the Son, and when He does, they will be saved. The Son will give them eternal life. He will secure them and keep them 
all of them so that none of them ever perish, and he will present all of them back to his Father at the end of time. A total, complete, redeemed people. Not one of them missing. Not one of them perishing. Not one of them lost. Not one of them forgotten at all. That is the work of the Father and the Son. This is what theologians call the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. It's a covenant made not between man and man, and not between God and man, but between the Father and the Son and the Spirit on behalf of all of those in the covenant. Charles Spurgeon, I came across a a sermon by Spurgeon from the book of Hebrews, actually. Charles Spurgeon refers to this covenant of redemption and this plan of the triune God in eternity past to save his people as the mysterious council chamber. And then what Spurgeon does is he, he kind of takes, collected together the language of Scripture the Scripture uses to present the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in our salvation. Because all three members of the Trinity were involved. The Father planned and purposed our salvation. He elected us and chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He adopts us as His children. The Son is the one who has come to earth and took upon Himself human flesh and lived a perfect life and died as a sacrifice and a substitute for all those who will believe upon Him and bore their sin and purchased that salvation that the Father planned and purposed. And then the Holy Spirit is the one who takes the salvation that the Son purchased and the Father planned and applies it to those people in quickening the hearts and creating faith within and granting repentance and bringing His people to Himself and sanctifying us fully and keeping us to the end. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each have a role in salvation. So it's not one member of the Trinity, say for instance the Son, working to overcome the resistance of the other members of the Trinity. And it's not each person of the Trinity trying to accomplish his own thing in salvation. There is harmony and unity amongst the three persons. And they have all agreed as to what the roles are. And the Son does not usurp or try and take the Father's role. And the Father does not take away from the Son his role. And the Holy Spirit is content to have his role. All three of them working together to accomplish your salvation. There was a covenant, an agreement made between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity past in eternity past, where each person of the Trinity decided what they would do and what role they would have in saving lost sinners. So here's what Spurgeon writes. And this is a little bit of an imagination, but you can hear in the language the verbiage of Scripture and probably recognize certain passages of Scripture that describe these functions of salvation with members of the Trinity. Spurgeon introduces it by saying this, It is a noble and glorious thought, the very poetry of that old Calvinistic doctrine which we teach, that long before the day star knew its place, before God had spoken existence out of nothing, before angel's wing had stirred the unnavigated ether, before a solitary song had distributed the, disturbed the solemnity of the silence in which God reigned supreme, he had entered into a solemn council with himself, with his Son, and with his Spirit, and had in that council decreed, determined, purposed, and predestinated the salvation of his people. He had, moreover, in the covenant arranged the ways and the means and fixed and settled everything which should work together for the effecting of the purpose and the decree. My soul, this is Spurgeon now, my soul flies back, winged by imagination and by faith, and looks into that mysterious council chamber. And by faith I behold the Father pledging Himself to the Son, and the Son pledging Himself to the Father, while the Spirit gives His pledge to both. And thus that divine compact, long to be hidden in darkness, is completed and settled. The covenant which in these latter days has been read in the light of heaven, and has become the joy and hope and boast of all the saints. Okay, now listen. What is it that each person of the Trinity does for your salvation? 
Spurgeon imagines the Father's pledge in this covenant being this. I, the Most High Jehovah, do hereby give unto my only begotten and well-beloved Son a people, countless beyond the number of stars who shall be by Him washed from sin, by Him preserved and kept and led, and by Him at last presented before my throne without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. I covenant by oath and swear by myself, because I can swear by no one greater, that these whom I now give to Christ shall be forever the objects of my eternal love. Them I will forgive through the merit of His blood. To these I give a perfect righteousness. These I will adopt and make my sons and daughters, and these shall reign with me through Christ eternally. End quote. That is what the Father does for your salvation. Now what about the Holy Spirit? Spurgeon imagines that the Holy Spirit's pledge in this covenant of redemption would be this. I hereby covenant with all whom the Father giveth to the Son. I will in due time quicken. I will show them their need of redemption. I will cut off from them all groundless hope and destroy their refuges of lies. I will bring them to the blood of sprinkling and I will give them faith whereby this blood shall be applied to them. I will work in them every grace. I will keep their faith alive. I will cleanse them and drive out all depravity from them and they shall be presented at last spotless and faultless. End quote. That is exactly what the Holy Spirit does. Now what about the Son? Spurgeon imagines that the Son's side of the covenant of redemption would sound something like this. My Father, on my part, I covenant that in the fullness of time I will become a man. I will take upon myself the form and nature of the fallen race. I will live in their wretched world, and for my people I will keep the law perfectly. I will work out a spotless righteousness which shall be acceptable to the demands of thy just and holy law. In due time I will bear the sins of all my people. Thou shalt exact their debts on me. The chastisement of their peace I will endure, and by my stripes they shall be healed. My Father, I covenant and promise that I will be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I will magnify thy law and make it honorable. I will suffer all that they ought to have suffered. I will endure the curse of thy law, and all the vials of thy wrath shall be emptied and spent upon my head. I will then rise again. I will ascend into uh, into thy thou that thou hast given me, and none of them shall ever be lost, but I will bring all my sheep, of whom by thy blood thou hast constituted me the shepherd, I will bring every one of them safe to thee at last. End quote. Now was that actually spoken in the councils of eternal heaven? And those words actually written down? No. But friends, those words describe exactly what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit has purposed and planned and done for your salvation. That is the work of the most blessed triune God in the redemption of His people. All of them playing a role, all of them performing their part, all of them accomplishing the task that they purposed and planned before time began. All for your glory and your salvation and God's eternal glory and His purposes. That is the plan of redemption of the blessed triune God. We glory in it. We worship in it. And friends, there is security in realizing that the Trinity has purposed your salvation. And when the Trinity purposes to do something, there is no doubt as to its certainty that it will come to pass just as God has planned and willed it. He will do all His good pleasure. And we rejoice in that, do we not? Let's bow together in prayer. Our blessed God, our triune God, we thank You for the salvation that You have given to Your people. We are truly the beneficiaries of 
far more grace than we could ever have imagined, and more grace will be lavished upon us through all of eternity. We thank you that you have included us in this plan to redeem sinners and that you have included us in this purpose to glorify your name. You have purposed to glorify and honor your glory and your name, and we thank you that you have chosen to do it by redeeming us and saving us. And we know that it was not by anything that we have done, not by works of righteousness by which we are saved, but you have given us the righteousness of your Son. And so we thank you, Father, for purposing our salvation, for planning it, for electing and choosing us, for adopting us as your, as your children, for forgiving us of all of our sins based upon the, the work of Christ. We thank you, O Son, for coming here and taking upon yourself the nature and form of a man and coming to die in the place of sinners, for being obedient to death, even death on a cross. And we thank you, O Spirit of God, that you have opened our eyes and taught us and instructed us, that you, O Spirit of God, have regenerated us and given us life, that you have sanctified us and that you continue to sanctify us. This work of redemption is the redemption wrought by the triune God. And we thank you, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for your work in it, for the glory that you will bring from it. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.